Student use of mobile technology can enrich student learning experiences, but can also interfere with the focused attention that is essential for learning. In this episode, we examine how we can talk to students about technology in ways that will help them become more efficient in their learning and professional lives. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Michelle Miller. Michelle is a professor of psychological sciences and a president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. Dr. Miller's academic background is in cognitive psychology research. Her research interests include memory, attention, and student success in the early college career. Michelle is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and has written about evidence-based pedagogy and scholarly as well as general interest publications. She's currently working on her newest book, Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology, what the science of memory tells us about teaching and learning in a wired world, scheduled as part of the West Virginia University series on teaching and learning. Welcome back, Michelle. Hi, it's great to be here. So good to have you back. Today's teas are, Michelle, are you drinking any tea? Well, I'm still on coffee. We have a three-hour time difference this time of the year, and so I figure I'm entitled. How about you, John? I am drinking ginger peach green tea. And I have golden monkey today. For a change. It's expensive. I only drink it on special occasions. I was like, we're going to get to talk to Michelle today. I'm going to make fancy tea. Well, coffee is the fanciest tea of all. We've invited you here to talk a little bit about how to talk to students about technology and why perhaps you might consider talking to students about technology. You teach a course on mind, brain, and technology, and you've also created the Attention Matters Project that we've discussed on an earlier podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about the mind, brain, and technology class that you teach? Right. So this has been such an incredible privilege I've had on and off for several years now. Back a long time ago when I first applied for and was competing for the President's Distinguished Teaching Fellowship, honor and award here at Northern Arizona University, one of the things that we got to do as part of our application packet was to envision a dream course. And this was, gosh, around a decade ago that I did this. So the landscape of the research and technology itself was very different. But this is the course that I came up with to say, if I could teach one thing, brand new, build it from the ground up, this is what I would do. Something that would connect psychology, especially empirical, research-oriented psychology, the role of emerging technologies in our lives and the incursions they've made into all of our lives, and blend that with some real practical advice and things that would be engaging to college students today at a variety of levels. And so it went in my packet. I was so fortunate to win the award and be chosen for it. And then I came knocking on the doors. I said, but remember, there was this dream course. I actually was very literal minded. So I said, well, I get to teach this now, right? And my department said, well, oh, okay. Yes, we can work that out. And it originally was taught as a senior capstone. And it's been taught in that form again another time. 
had an incarnation as a freshman seminar, first year seminar. And right now I'm teaching it as a fairly large general elective, upper division elective, primarily serving our psychology majors and our minors. And so this is a course that I've been able to dip in and out of throughout the years. And I actually quote one of the first cohort of students. I got some really choice quotes that I included in my last book, Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology. And this semester, I actually have students reading some early drafts of the book I'm writing right now. And so it's really been interwoven throughout my professional evolution over the last 10 years. It's pretty cool that you got to ultimately teach the class and it's been going on for so long. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. What do your students think about the role of technology and social media in their lives, as well as in educational environments? Well, right from the get-go, when I got to first design this class and actually be sitting with a cohort of students every week and bringing up a new topic, we divided up into there's technologies for learning, there's the effects of technology on aspects of thinking like cognition and so on. There's several weeks on social media, which we're right in the middle of right now. So there's lots of different kind of articulation points where different students can come in with opinions. And so it does really cover that really broad area. So right from the beginning, I was so struck by the thoughtful and sometimes unexpected things that students would say. Unexpected meaning kind of counter to what are some real stereotypes about First of all, that all college students are a traditional age and this kind of lifestyle where you live in a dorm and party on the weekends. And I think most of us know that today's college students do not fit that mold and they're not all that age. But even students who are in this younger age bracket, to have them really say, like one of the early exercises we do in the course, I asked them to sort themselves on a continuum. We did it on a whiteboard this time via video conference, but in a physical classroom, they'd actually stand on different ends of this place yourself physically on this continuum. Do you love technology? You want it everywhere. Can't imagine life without it. You hate it. You want to go low tech. And students are really spread across that spectrum. And so many of them have thought, they've said, you know, I notice I feel a certain way after I'm on Instagram for a certain amount of time, or I've tried electronic textbooks and I personally prefer paper. That's actually consistent with some of the surveys that have been done with college students as well. So they're varied, they're rich, and they are very counter to the stereotype that younger people just want technology everywhere in their lives. What is one of the biggest misconceptions about technology that your students bring up in class that you address? Well, there's a a complex of sort of some interrelated ones that dial into my specialty area, which is cognitive psychology. So naturally, I notice those really prominently myself. And so those ideas that using technology is going to reduce attention span, it's reducing even your ability to think. And then there's a sort of a related set of issues around what has been in the past a very controversial and headline dominating issue, which is the issue of taking notes by hand versus on a laptop computer in class. And that research in particular, not to go through all of it, but while the original study that sparked that debate was well designed, the interpretation of it has been just stretched until it screams. It said he doesn't talk about the distraction issue. There's a lot of things that aren't addressed in it. But students have come away. They've heard this kind of very superficial version of that by which laptops are bad. And they also have kind of picked up a folk belief that if you handwrite something, it sort of drives it into your memory automatically. And it does not work that way. 
In fact, if you read the original study, one of the things that they say is that in as much as laptop note-taking can be less memorable, whatever you're taking notes on, it's because you're less likely to paraphrase, synthesize, and compress down what you're hearing. And yet we have other people, they've heard these people in the culture say, oh, well, if you want to remember something, sit down and copy it. Get out that pen and paper. And that's not really an effective study strategy. So they're a little surprised when they say, oh, wait a minute, there's some nuance to that study and maybe some others that didn't replicate it. That study wasn't talking about distraction on a laptop. It was just strictly speaking about this one aspect of how memory encoding works. Attention span, I probably talked about on an earlier podcast, this is not a concept that attention scientists usually use. And so right off the bat, that's a little suspect. And there's not really good solid evidence that fundamentally attention is changing. So they've absorbed some of those things. And so they're really delighted to really dig more into those. So I might assign them an editorial or something that ran in a popular magazine or a blog. And then we look at the original research they're talking about and we pick up on the discrepancies. It's not that Mueller and Oppenheimer was badly designed. It's just they were looking at some effects that don't always hold up with replication. And, and that speaks to this idea that the effect size is maybe not that large. Not that, again, anything was wrong with their data. It's just you have this now you see it, now you don't quality with some of these effects. And that kind of tells you that maybe this isn't the hugely overriding consideration. And subsequent studies, too, have talked about the storage function of notes. It's neat to think that you remember as a function of note-taking without having to go back and study. But in reality, that's what we do with notes. We go back and we study them. And so here's this big elephant in the room of like, well, are they taking good notes? And if they're not taking good notes that capture key points that they are going to want to go back and study actively, then picking up a little bit here or there because it was more memorable during note-taking is not as big an issue. So that's a big like, okay, what have you heard? Let's look at the original research. Having the opportunity to talk about these things with students is exciting. And I'm sure students are really into it because it connects to their direct lives. And diving into the research makes a lot of sense in the context in which you're teaching your course within psychology. So it seems like a natural fit there. How might other academic fields adopt some of this ability to talk about these things in their own classes where maybe cognitive science is not or psychology is not the fundamental underpinning of what they're doing? That's, I think, something that I think is real exciting and why I am so excited to be able to share with your T for Teaching audience is I've really come to believe that, that maybe there is something that is more versatile here beyond just the psychology frame and just a senior capstone in psychology. And I think that this is where faculty creativity can come in. I think the fundamental things that I think are so promising well, first of all, this is just a topic that is really under-discussed, and it's under-discussed in a serious way. It's not like students have not ever heard anybody critique technology. They've heard that. They've heard, oh, it messes with your sleep, it messes with your social relationships. They've heard a lot of this, but it's kind of swept under the rug in a way or even treated as what serious person would ever think about these sorts of things. So that's it. This is something that it is something that students are doing all the time, even pre-pandemic. Most students do use technology in one form or another and are on one or more social media platforms. And so this is in and out of their lives all day long. So I can only think that there are critical frames and key concepts within a variety of disciplines that could map onto this. Even if a faculty member doesn't have the opportunity or the interest to, say, develop a whole course, 
Well, perhaps this could be a vehicle for discussing, for example, experimental design. How do you set up a study to really get at things like what are the impacts of heavy cell phone use? You do have certain individuals who self-select to use technology in a particular way, and that's something that you see crop up again and again in the research literature. Or if we're talking about our own personal relationships, classes that have a focus on health can perhaps use one of these sub-areas as a springboard for discussion. And so this is just really what I found is that students who might otherwise be very quiet or when things are framed in a purely very divorced from reality academic way, they may hang back. But who doesn't get hooked in to a discussion of some of the impacts of technology on our lives? So I think it can be a vehicle for those things. And I think that it might be a little bit of a stretch in, say, a physical sciences class where we're really discussing empirical context. But even there, it can be folded into discussions of effective studying very well. As long as we don't just have that, again, very superficial text bad, just get rid of it all and do everything on note cards. There's a lot more to it than that. Students are going to be interacting with technology, not only in their classes, but in their future careers. So having them think about these issues can be a really useful thing to learn, no matter what discipline they're studying. Seems like a good hook. It's something that everyone can relate to in some context. I was doing an exercise in my own class not too long ago about storytelling and how brands present stories around what they're presenting to people. And I use Spotify and Pandora as the examples. I've never seen a class so excited (laughs) because it was talking about this technology platform that they can connect to. So I can imagine when you bring up social media or other things that they feel really connected to, it immediately is a hook to talk about anything more complex. Absolutely. And that's precisely the kind of dynamic that I've seen. And if I could throw out kind of a discipline-specific example, but there's a concept that I really started weaving in more over the last few iterations of the class. And this is a concept from psychological sciences research and quantitative analysis that really can be very slippery, but it's a big, big part of contemporary ways that we analyze data. And it's a concept of mediators and moderators. And so it's jargony. It essentially mediators when you have a correlation between two things and you want to know, does A cause B or is there something else in the middle? Does A cause B causes C? And we have these great techniques for untangling those relationships. And moderators, on the other hand, is the relationship or correlation stronger in the presence of a particular variable or for, say, a a particular group of people than others? And so, yeah, you read that in a textbook and you go, oh. And yet it's one of the things that we really, I mean, experimental design and how we can interpret our data is just radically more sophisticated when we can just not say, well, these two things happen together, but for whom is this relationship stronger and so on. So there are a lot of studies on the effects of technology that have one or more of these involved. And yeah, it just clicks for students when they see it play out in this relatable domain. So for example, we have a study that I incorporate really early in the course. It's got a word in the title, technoference in relationships. So it's a study of your perception that your partner in an intimate relationship uses their phone (laughs) when you're talking to them. I think a lot of a little bit of recognition if we're in a relationship. That's part of contemporary relationships, right? And they look at overall well-being and how that relates to being in a relationship where your partner's on the phone all the time. Now, it's not a perfect study, and that's part of what we look at. It was only among women who were in opposite-sex relationships, and there's a lot of self-report and all that stuff, but 
you can say there, okay, now they have a mediator. It's not that the phone itself is degrading your life's well-being, but here's this chain of causality of when your partner is using their phone all the time when you're talking, then you're not as happy in your relationship, there's conflict, and then your overall well-being in your life goes down. And then in that context, you go, oh, okay, I get it. Here's what a mediator is. And then we can talk about moderators. We can say, well, what about individuals who are in same-sex relationships? What about men? What about couples who have been together for 25 years versus those who just got together six months ago? Oh, okay, now we understand moderators. So yeah, similar to you, Rebecca, I'm just saying once you bring in some of these things, it's not just dropping in sort of pop culture. It's really taking a substantive look at these things. But yeah, then you springboard into concepts that are otherwise just really abstract. Do you have some examples of things about learning related to technology that we might be able to slip into any disciplines classes? Some of the stuff about attention or good study strategies or anything that's maybe mediated through technology, but would relate to anybody? Definitely the relationship between attention and memory and learning. Now, like I always say when I'm talking about these topics, memory is not the only important aspect of learning. Learning is not all about memorization. But we now know that when you remember more, we have a broader knowledge base in an area, you're better able to think critically and think in some sophisticated ways in that area. So that's all good stuff. So that's one piece of it. And in order to acquire any new memories, pretty much for practical purposes, you have to be paying attention. And this is what devices and technologies have been so well engineered at this point to take away from us. So yeah, when you talk about a life skill, you're going to need this for the rest of your life, no matter what you do. We have to think about, all right, how do we kind of shepherd and be stewards of our own attention? And I think from a teaching perspective too, it's not that we have to constantly entertain students to grab their attention back from whatever it's wandering off on, or similar that we just have to stand up there and be like, well, you have to pay attention unbroken for an hour and 15 minutes and all violations will be punished. There's different paths between those, but just to share with students that, yeah, using phones is probably not changing the way our attentional systems work. They work the way they have for many, many millennia. However, there's a lot more competition for that now. So having them think about what are their strategies going to be for some students, they come up with very creative cold turkey types of situations or types of strategies. I have one student say, I put my phone in a Dropbox outside at night when I'm studying. And if I want to use it, I have to go out there, which may not seem like a big deal. But in Flagstaff, it could easily be three degrees Fahrenheit and ice falling out of the sky. It's cold out here. So we have students who say, well, you know what, I'm going to be a little bit more subtle. I'm going to use one browser for my classwork and one browser for fun and social media. And it's just a little subtle cue that kind of tells you, okay, we're in work mode or we're not in work mode. It's not as much prescribing the answers as getting students themselves involved and saying, well, here's how I'm going to manage this. So those are some of the things that we would share. And when it comes to learning strategies at work, I'm always going to be evangelizing retrieval practice in one form or another. Lots of ways that that can look, everything from a Kahoot quiz to sitting and talking with your roommate to try to bat back and forth what you remembered. Lots of different things you can do, but just to there's that link between you have to put in some active effort for your brain to pick up on that information and store it away in memory if it's going to. So yeah, there's sort of a complex of interrelated principles and take-homes there. The one thing that I was immediately thinking about when you said about phones being really good at taking away your attention 
I immediately thought as a designer, what a great example of how to get someone's attention. (laughs) (laughs) Not only to think about how to manage attention and think about what you're paying attention to, but how do designers actually manipulate that? (laughs) Same, perfect. It's a cross-disciplinary connection. The importance of attention is a topic that I think all students recognize is a problem, but I don't think they fully understand quite how much of a problem it can be. Or at least my perception is there's still a lot of misperceptions about the ability of students to multitask effectively. And I know that's something that you address a bit in your classes. I do. And a related project that we've discussed on some other podcasts is the Attention Matters Project. And I'm happy to report that project is still just perking along like crazy. We still have lots of faculty who are involved with it. So to kind of give a little background on it, Attention Matters was a concept that came out of a great conversation I had with my very smart and dedicated colleague, John Doherty, who's an instructional designer and a librarian here at Northern Arizona University. And I've been going around and trying to teach a little almost guest lecture roadshow for interested faculty to spread these ideas to students of how to study effectively and how to have a plan for not getting distracted in the middle of class and stuff like that. And we talked about it and we put together an online module that can serve so many more students. This semester, I have several really smart research assistants, undergraduate research assistants who are in this module, moderating it and helping it run. And for those who know what MOOCs are, massive open online courses, it's a little bit like that, except it's specific to our institution. And so in this, it's a way of reaching out to students. They oftentimes will earn a little bit of extra credit in their classes for faculty who really want to spread these ideas to their students. They work through these modules that do touch on some of these key ideas about as far as multitasking, we tend to be very overconfident. You can't learn by osmosis. You do need that directed attention. Instead of highlighting and passively hoping things soak in, get in there and do retrieval practice. There's also a little piece of Attention Matters, by the way, that talks about driving safety, which was not really something we set out to do, but I feel like it's, again, a relatable everyday example that people can say, oh my gosh, I was in a bike accident by a distracted driver, or I'm very careful about this, and students are very adamant and have strong views that do funnel back to that idea of, if you let it, devices and distraction of all kind can really take over and create some serious consequences. So That's yet another way that we've been working to bring these ideas to students throughout the years. And yet another thing that's given us a fascinating window into what students are already doing to cope with these things and some of their unexpected attitudes and ideas about them. One thing that a lot of folks are doing as they're teaching remotely or trying to jazz things up in synchronous online classes is trying to play with the idea of gamification in their classes, which certainly comes from technology and often from video games and some experience around that. Can you talk a little bit about how faculty might use gamification in their classes or also how that works on students? Yeah, games and gamification has been such a topic for so long in how can we use technology for education. And you know, it's funny, when I was doing research for Minds Online, I actually went to the Musée Mécanique in San Francisco. As a sort of a background research, it's this amazing museum that's just whatever the technologies of the time were, and it goes back like 100 years. All these different games, physical games you can play there. It's a cool museum. Oh, you've been there. Oh, my gosh. I was too. 
people have used photography in games and gamification. They've used all these different ways of using tech to play. So this is not a modern concept. And so we've seen lots of attempts throughout the years to also harness it for learning, some more successful than others. It's just such a deep theme in those connections between mind-brain learning technology. And so students here too, they get pretty excited about it. And that's a good thing for faculty who are looking to use games and gamification. Now, it's another where I think drilling a little bit below the surface is really beneficial. It's pretty clear to me from the research and literature so far that what makes games effective and what makes them so compelling, you know, elicits the time, effort, and attention that you need for learning. It's not the superficial stuff stuff about the experience. It's not the music and it's not just calling it a game. It's not necessarily tacking points onto something, although points and scorekeeping is usually a part of most compelling games for sure. But there's deeper things about getting really rapid feedback. There's the opportunity for friendly competition. And that's something that I've really seen this year because I've also been using quite a few quizzes and polls and things like that in my courses too that are remote. Is it you don't have to attach a grade to the game to get some students really into the idea of competition, while other students, there it's more anxiety provoking or it's just too much because they're already in so many high stakes competitive exams where they can play for fun. And so those are some of the aspects that are important when people are thinking about selecting a game, setting up a game, bringing gamification in some way. It doesn't have to all be cheesy, let's make everything look like a video game, but really that idea too that mistakes are part of it, but we're playing a Kahoot and you get an answer wrong, whatever, we're doing something else in five seconds, and it's not a big issue like a test question is. So there's definitely that. And I would say too that students here as well, they can be a great source for insight. So talk to your students, say what aspects of this game are more appealing, less appealing, and so on. And games and game culture too, this is something that I really get a sense that they've never had a serious let alone academic conversation about the role of gaming in their lives. Yet for many students, that's an important part of their identity. It's what they do to relax. It's what they do to socialize now quite frequently, especially with distancing happening. So as weird as it might sound, let's take games seriously. Let's take games seriously as an important aspect of students' lives. Let's take it seriously as a road to learning. And let's just keep exploring that because the more research that gets done, the more effective and beneficial features we find associated with games. And the most popular games are those that students can work through. And no matter what their prior knowledge with that type of game, as you said, provide some feedback and that feedback is targeted so that they can use that to improve. And the level of the games are set so that it's neither so challenging that they give up and get discouraged, but not so easy that they don't have the sense of challenge. And that seems like a really good way of perhaps thinking about how we should design our classes in general. Whether we include explicit gamification aspects or not, creating an environment that encourages students to actively want to engage with the material and where they can see progress and see their advancing, that is in general something that I think is a really important thing for us to contemplate, at least in course design. Agree 100%. Agree 100%. And that's exactly what makes games compelling. What is it about social media that makes people return to it again and again and again, (laughs) so hundreds of times in a day? And what features can we extract and adapt in the service of learning? One of the things we talked about with Ken Bain last week was an example about the arts and how that might change someone's thinking and experience with a piece of artwork. So I use that kind of example to inspire a little activity with my students this morning. And I asked them, 
can you talk about a piece of artwork that has influenced your thinking? And I gave them some categories and I'm teaching an interaction motion design class, but I included visual art, but games were one of my categories. And some of the students put some really interesting examples about how certain games have gotten them to really contemplate interesting ethical questions, relationship questions, really interesting stuff. And they wrote really thoughtful responses about, I had them basically write the name of the game and just a sentence about how it impacted their thinking. But there were some really thoughtful responses. And it was really almost surprising to me how deep some of those quick summaries of their experiences had been with games. Yeah, that's perfect. And without the conversation, you wouldn't have that window. For many years, we've all heard lots of arguments from faculty about whether technology should be or should not be used in classes. The pandemic, to a large extent, has shut those down completely. And that's been, for many of us, quite a bit of a relief not to have to deal with those arguments all the time. However, as we begin to move back into a more traditional on-site teaching environment where more instruction is taking place in regular classrooms again, what are some of the things that people may have learned about interacting with technology effectively during the pandemic that may perhaps lead to improvements in how we teach our classes regularly? That is just such a meaty question, and I think it's one where we're going to see so much just rapid development of reactions. It ties into the whole question right now of what does instruction look like post-pandemic or whatever the next stage of the pandemic is. But yeah, what a good time to think about this. And, you know, I can look at it, too, through the lens of faculty experience. I was kind of fortunate to have had my Zoom baptism (laughs) completely by accident earlier in spring of 2020 because I set up this idea of having a lot of guest speakers in one class and I got a huge response which is wonderful, but I needed to bring them in. And I had always kind of said, well, if I'm in a Zoom, I'm going to kind of sidestep that. I'm going to let somebody else drive. And I had to get over that really fast. And so I do think that it illustrates the value of some targeted, not totally strategically planned practice with technology tools. And that's just kind of bedrock cognitive processes that when you have something like being able to just run Zoom or collaborate or something like that or have an online poll, your ability to do that while monitoring a classroom or answering questions, you got to have the practice in first and our students are the same way. So we can think about, all right, whatever we're going to have students interacting with or using or if it's us (laughs) using something having that practice up front and expecting that once we're on the other side of the learning curve, it looks very, very different. So that is one big part of it. On a much more conceptual or abstract level, I think that this whole year, we've really needed to look at students and their goals and why they're there in the class in the first place and why are they taking the course. That's something I've written about in some of the shorter articles I put out this year. I think that pandemic teaching was distinctive for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that you just can't keep persisting with, okay, I'm the learning cop here and I'm going to make sure everybody does things because I'm watching you. At the end of the day, I found if my students, I hope they're not, but yeah, if they are in Zoom, they could be doing other things. They may be minimally attentive and that is not good for their learning. And I do a lot of things to have a lot of different shifts and gears to bring in gamification. I've done a lot of things to do that. But ultimately, if the student wants to check out, they can check out to an extent. And I'm not saying I'm okay with that. But I think that we are going to be meeting students much more in the middle instead of having a more adversarial relationship to their learning. I'm here to enforce what you have to know. 
I mean, we have to collaborate to have something like remote teaching, the way we're doing it, to have that work at all. There has to be more of a collaborative approach to it. So I know that that's a very top level conceptual type of answer. But I think that in a lot of things, we're going to be saying, well, you know what? If this is something that helps some students, and if I've talked to students about why they're here and they're purpose-driven, I am here to actually learn and take something from this class because I need it for the next class. Well, that's a great basis to springboard off of instead of how do I write the policy in my syllabus that will prevent any kind of behavior I see as undesirable. And, you know, so many people were already moving away from that, which I think is incredibly fortunate given what we've been through in the last year. But this may be, if not a tipping point, something else that pushes us more in that direction of saying, well, what are the policies there to do? Yes, students have to pay attention to learn. And that is very, very clear during remote pandemic teaching as well as everywhere else. But let's maybe take some different approaches and have a different philosophy of how we get there. One of the things that I also hear you hinting at, Michelle, is that during the pandemic, we've all had a lot to manage. We've had a lot of cognitive load. And so we have to prioritize and we have to decide what's going to win our attention. And so students have the same problem all the time, just like we have the same problem all the time. We're just more aware of it now. They have multiple classes to balance. They might have family concerns. They might have jobs. And at some point, they're making choices about what they're going to attend to and what they can't attend to. And I think sometimes we always hope and wish that they're attending to whatever we're putting out in front of them, but that might not be the best choice for them in a given moment based on the other things that are going on in our lives. And we just often don't think of our students in that kind of holistic point of view. Oh, absolutely. That's such a eloquent example of this way of thinking and the things that we have learned and the shift in mindset that we may be on the cusp of. And that's another thing that really underlies the approach to talking to students about technology that I've really come to adopt, which is the same side instead of opposite sides stance. Like you said, we do struggle with some common things. I'm caricaturing a little bit, but I think we're playing off of an older mindset where it's us. We're older. We're in this position of authority. And here's how we like to do things. And here's this young generation and they seem very alien to us and they want to do something else. And we're going to make them come over to our side saying, look, we all get distracted. In class, I'm frequently saying, well, yeah, here's something unpleasant that happened to me on social media, even if I don't tell them all the details. (laughs) The point is, yeah, I get misunderstandings and hurt feelings on social media too. I end up in the social comparison that tends to be so toxic on places like Instagram. I get really, really distracted and sidetracked because I'm using the same computer for 20 different things all at once. And so let's work together to see how we can address those challenges. And yeah, so I think that what you're describing is, I think, a very healthy way forward. Now that faculty have had a chance to get more insight into students' lives, perhaps now faculty will be more understanding of those things in the future because the classroom environment is somewhat separated from all that. It was much easier to ignore those things. And maybe faculty will be more likely to treat students as human beings, perhaps in the future. Are you implying (laughs) that the classroom is real life? Well, maybe it may more closely resemble that as we move back into more traditional classroom settings. Yes, and I'm all for that. We always end with a question, and it's particularly relevant now. What's next? As you mentioned at the top of our interview together, I am in the very final stages of completing the Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology book. So I'm really excited to having that book be coming out in the not too distant future. And 
I'm really throwing myself into a brand new professional role, which is as the co-editor of the teaching and learning series with West Virginia University Press. Now, this series has just drawn so many dynamic thinkers with so many practical and also evidence-based ideas that we can all use in teaching and learning. And so it was a tremendous honor to be invited to take that role on. And I'll be working with the other editor of the series who founded the series and, and launched it all, Dr. James Lang, who has just been just tremendously influential in the area of bringing evidence-based, effective pedagogical strategies to so many people in higher education. He's been this tremendous leader in that area. His writing is also amazing, so what an honor to get to work with him and with West Virginia University Press. Stepping into that role has taken up a lot, and it's been wonderful already. So that is, for the most part, what's next for me. And I think we could say the same about your writing based on your earlier book, as well as recent comments that Jim Lang made on Twitter about how much he enjoyed the clarity of your writing and your exposition in this new book and how much he's looking forward to that being released. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to say. And being able to teach students and to talk to students for so many years about these issues was the inspiration that gave me ideas to work with. So it all comes around. Well, thanks as always for joining us, Michelle, and sharing some of your insights and some of the work that you've been doing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. And we're looking forward to talking to you about this book as it gets closer to coming out. Absolutely. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.